1: Amen. If you know the alphabet, you can go. (laughs) Uh, So it kind of worked out with Karen uh, being up here and me praying for her, that I'm going to be introducing our speaker this morning, and what a joy it is for me. I have a hard time uh, introducing him without doing this. I, I was. Most of you know this. I was in New Philadelphia uh, for 25 years of my life. I, I thought I was either going to be thrown in the ground from there or be raptured off of the face of the earth from there. Never dreaming that uh, that I would uh, ever leave there. And uh, through uh, just some crazy set of circumstances, God moved me on. And. Uh, he brought in somebody that is much smarter than me, but embraces the the same philosophy of ministry that we were tenaciously trying to establish uh, in that church. He uh, served in Albania for, was it 12 years, bro? 14. And, uh, Just did an incredible work there. I think most of you are familiar with that. And now God is using him uh, in that field where I invested a lot of my time and energies. And uh, it is such a joy to my heart to introduce to you my brother and my friend, Pastor Jeff Bartell.
0: Man, that was really nice, that was awesome, thanks. I just wanna be introduced, I don't wanna actually say nothing. (laughs) I wanna introduce all y'all, that was fun. Well, Happy New Year, and uh, Happy New Decade, I guess. Um, Before we get started, I do do wanna ask you to do one thing with me, um, and that would be, if you are an out-of-towner, if you've come in from out-of-town, in other words, if you're not from Midtown, and if you're not from Harvest out in Blue Springs, uh, just for a second, can you just stand up? Dude, look at all that. Now, stay, just a second. The reason, no, I want you to stand up. That, I didn't tell you to sit down. <laughs> the reason I, I do that is because I want all of us that are standing, to give a standing ovation for the folks from Midtown and Harvest. Amen. And I, I really mean that. Go ahead and have a seat. Go ahead and have a seat, thanks. I really mean that. Sam, you guys, Alan, you guys, I mean, you really, you really sacrifice and serve and go the extra mile and second and third and fourth and we're all better for it. And, and this is an exciting time, it's a highlight of the year for everybody. Um, I, there's a lot of thanks that need to go around, but on behalf of the visitors, can I just say, God bless you and thank you so much for all that you do for us. I, I really mean that. Um, well, I, I, was, I thought I, I drew the right slot on Wednesday because I figured everybody would be so tired and sleepy and. It's, I don't know if y'all realize it's New Year's Day, right? All the football games are on and all that. I thought I'd have a really small crowd. It'd be real <laughs> low pressure, but y'all just don't care about those things apparently. Y'all just care about these things, and so praise the Lord for that. That is, that is a blessing. Okay, so we are continuing on obviously in our instruction and, and laying the foundation for some key elements as we get our minds directed toward the mission, right? <laughs> And so today, the, the subject is a biblical philosophy of missions and uh, you have some notes in front of you as we walk through some things. I, I do wanna start off very basic. We'll go through it really quickly and then we're gonna jump into some very practical things. I, I know that in a crowd like this, we're all very familiar with one another and, and I'm, as always, super honored and privileged to be a part of anything that goes on here, I'm thrilled to do it from the pew. I certainly don't need to have a microphone to do it, but I'm, I'm so humbled and thankful. Most all of you are very well informed on the basic understanding of what we're supposed to be doing, right? And and I feel like when I'm asked to participate and comment and contribute at some level that at this, I feel like we're we're at a really critical stage in our development as a fellowship of churches because so many of you are doing such a great job of responding and the graduation from LFBI and the sending out of more and more people and, and all of these things are in place and the structure's there and you're following it faithfully and, and working through the details where you're maybe not faithful and, and you're being shepherded and all these things are going on. I, I feel it's upon me to just try and give us some very practical handles on what does it look like going forward. And that's what I've taken upon myself to, and I believe the Lord has given me to share with you today. There's so many things that can be discussed when we talk about the world of how we're going to carry out missions. And so, it's, you know, it's like anything. It's hard to cram it all into you know, an hour or less. But, but let me just start basic. We'll build a few bricks and then we'll kind of go from there. Um, first off, I just want to start with some definitions really quickly. I gave you three different words. Doctrine, philosophy, and strategy. Okay, because they are different words and they mean different things. And, and so, because I gave you some blanks because that's what we do. Um, actually, we ne- I never did that until I went to First Baptist. They do it there, so I had to do it. So now we do it. Uh, Doctrine is the body of truth. Everybody knows that. Doctrine is teaching. Doctrine is the body of truth that God has given to us. And so obviously it's to govern everything that we think. It's to govern everything that we do. And for a Christian, right, it's the word of God. Therefore, the doctrine, the body of truth is not negotiable. It's absolute. And so understanding that what is written, what goes in the category of thus saith the Lord, is what God expects us to do. Now, how we play all that out is what we continue to try and figure out on this journey. And so the next thing is philosophy. And well, you probably know that literally the word means the love of wisdom. That's literally what the word means. But generally, it's used to represent the reason why we do things. So the philosophy kind of goes towards why do we do the things that we do? And that's what we're gonna be addressing together today. And then lastly, strategy would be the how. How we carry out the philosophy. By the time you get to strategy, you're setting specific goals and objectives and, and steps that you can work towards accomplishing and boxes you can check off your list and all those sort of things. But the strategy should support the philosophy. And of course, the philosophy needs to be a biblical philosophy based on the truth of God's Word. And so, before we get into the philosophy, I just want to ask you to humor me for a minute or two to simply restate what the doctrine is, right? Just so that we can be clear. We, we need to all be on the same page here. In other words, if somebody's listening to this, whether you're here or later on a, on a live, or, uh, the, the YouTube feed or something like that, that if you don't have the same doctrine of understanding what biblical missions is all about then really all the other conversation does. It doesn't really matter because you're gonna land in far different conclusions of what you choose to do and how you choose to carry it out because your doctrine is different, right? So it's worthy for us to talk for a second about what the doctrine of missions is. Well, since missions isn't a Bible word, then officially, there is no doctrine of missions. (laughs) I'm done. No. Um, (laughs) In other words, it's not a topic that would be in the list of traditional systematic theology. Uh, It's not one of the ologies per se, although people make up missiology, but I get it. All I want to say is this, is that missions is just ministry. That's all it is. And, And we heard about the philosophy of ministry discipleship yesterday missions is just doing ministry we typically just apply it to a different geographic location and all the things that go with necessary cultural adaptation just to do ministry in some place other than where we are. And I know we generally categorize, you're a missionary right here, you can walk across the street instead of across the globe. Okay, I get that, I do. I'm not against that, I'm, I get the idea. But I'm just saying, generally speaking, don't overthink it. Don't try and be too clever. Don't try and think that you know there's some new way to nuance and put together, I'm gonna get that missing key and it's all gonna make sense. It's just ministry. It's just doing the Word and the will of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. And if God needs to change your geography to do it, well, then he's going to change it. He, he's fully capable, by the way. And so, you know, it's a missions conference. We are, we're always going to remind you of what you already know. And that's the Great Commission. Go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations. We know that. And so the idea is, what is, what is, what is the one thing God left us to do? He left us the Great Commission. What? does that entail? It entails evangelism, it entails discipleship, and it entails church planting. That's what it entails. And if you get away from that focus, that it's evangelism, we are not going to steal fish out of somebody else's fish pond to make a prettier fish bowl. We need to win, we need to win the lost, and we need to train the lost, and all of those things we already heard, and most of you already know, with the goal of planting Biblical New Testament churches. Because the church is God's plan for reaching the world. So this is very simple, that's it. It's gonna be the same whether you're here, it's gonna be the same whether you're in Malawi, it's gonna be the same no matter where you go. Because man is the same all over the world. And man's problem is the same all over the world. And God's solution to man's problem is the same all over the world. It's super simple. So. It's appropriate that at this conference this year we have breakout sessions on evangelism. It's appropriate that we've spent time already talking about the biblical philosophy and understanding of discipleship and training. And by the way, you should be looking to start churches in a missions context rather than just being a Christian with a foreign address. I mean, that's fine too, I get it. Be a Christian wherever you are, I get it. But if you're just gonna go get a job because your company allows it, you're gonna go live in France now instead of America and you're gonna be a Christian and help the ministry, praise the Lord, that's different. I think that's a little bit different than being a sent one from a church with the express purpose of being an evangelist, a disciple maker, and a church planter. And that's all I want to point out, for, and it's doctrine. Why? Because that's what the Apostle Paul did all through the book of Acts. That's that's what we see, right? However, I do want to at least just remind you of Matthew 16 and verses 13 to 18, and that's that whole interaction with the disciples and, you know, who do you say that I am and all that stuff, And, and Peter nails it, right? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, and, you know... Okay, Jesus comes down to the very end of verse 18 and he says, okay, thou art Peter upon this rock. Just notice, Jesus said, I will build my church. In other words, I say that to say this. At the end of the day, really, 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 you as an individual, what does God expect of you? Evangelism and discipleship, that's what he expects of you for the rest of your life. And if you will do that faithfully and fruitfully, Jesus said, He'll build the church. Yeah. Now, we should do it with the goal of seeing that happen. But Jesus said, he'll build the church. If you have all this fruit of evangelism and discipleship, well, naturally, you need the continuation, when discipleship really ever end, the continuation of that is we've got to gather them together. We've got to train them. We've got to teach. Okay, those are churches. But our job is really very simple, y'all. And if, if you get away from that, you've lost, you've lost the stream of your focus. It's evangelism and discipleship, and that's all, that's all that it is. It's simple. Okay, with that basis, and I think we're all on the same page, let's jump into the philosophy. So the philosophy of missions, well, if it's going to be a biblical philosophy, obviously, it needs to be based on the doctrine that we just discussed. And it's going to reflect this strategy. The ideas is will we'll be taken from this biblical understanding, this doctrinal understanding. And because I see that we are at a different place today than we were five years ago when we met and had these meetings, that we have more and more of us trained and approved and no longer novices and being launched out and there's so many more of you in the shoot ready and soon and very soon to be in that category, well, I think it's time to get very practical about what should you expect? What should it look like? And in addressing these things, I understand that we're addressing them, not just so that each and every one of you can get an idea of what's out there, but it's also for us as church leaders because at the end of the day, each local church certainly has their own autonomy and direction from the Lord as to how the specific details of each of these should work out through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So, it, it, you know, for me, I want to kind of stick in the middle of the road, and if your church grabs a hold of some ideas that link on that and different, okay, that's, God bless you, that's fantastic, but I feel like it's time for us to try and just nail down what are the core issues of a philosophy of missions that we cannot deviate from? Are we okay with that? All right, I have four main things. They're not that difficult, actually, but we'll spend some time talking about them. Number one, clarify God's calling on your life. You know, I I never go anywhere in a crowd like this when this is the topic, that questions and conversations don't come to me And it's always associated with this thing that apparently is so hard to understand that people are constantly confused about it. And I don't mean to sound condescending in saying that. People are genuinely confused about this idea, is God calling me? And we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about what exactly that means. We've actually spent time talking about that in the past. God has commanded us to do the Great Commission. And so if you are of the mindset that you're sitting around and waiting for some supernatural, unexplicable, inexplicable experience to descend upon you like the golden fairy dust before you get busy, you have the wrong idea of a calling. <laughs> you have the wrong idea of a calling. Uh, the calling of God is, is just simply the putting into practice. It's It's the... Responding to the revelation of God's word that he's already given us. And then, well, God places you in a specific role that fulfills that plan. It's just that simple. It's not that big a deal. So with that in mind, again, I'm shooting for the dead center on this one. And and please don't misunderstand me because I I knew when I put this together that this first point, I probably should have put it last because this first point, has the, ten, the, the opportunity to be misunderstood. But you know, that's who I am, so let's just do it. You ready? If you're called to missions, if you're called to missions, you're called the pastor. You're called the pastor. Now, does that mean that your title is only the senior pastor of a local New Testament community? That, that, that's not what I'm trying to say. But if you're not a pastor, if you don't have this pastoral mindset of shepherding the people that you will lead to Christ and disciple with the context of living in the structure of a New Testament local church, you just shouldn't mess with the term missions. You can go be a Christian in a place, you can go be a blessing, you can be the part of a team that helps the missionary pastor as he's doing what he's doing, but please, Don't try, there's just so many things that people confuse in their minds, and there's so many things about what we understand as traditional biblical missions that that are, quite frankly, not always the easiest and the most pleasant and our favorite things to think about and do, that we immediately start to strategize. Us Westerners, we're funny about that. We want to strategize a way around it. And so because, you know, I'm not really going to step up to the plate and pastor, well, I'm going to dream up ways that I can do it without having to do that. Because I don't really want to go out and raise funds to, you know, I don't want to go from church to church in a minivan with my kids, and I don't want to beg for money, and I don't want to do this. And I, So then we dream up ways to figure out how we can self-finance and, you know, tent make and work jobs, and that's all fine. Again, we can have conversations about the details of how those things work out. I do understand them, trust me. But I think there's a lot of guys that that just avoid the fundraising so they just get a job in a foreign country. That's fine, and that may be strategic. But in a lot of cases, it's not because it's strategic. It's because they just want to avoid the pain, (laughs) if you wanna say that, of trusting the Lord enough to go out and see if God will fund the vision that you believe he put in your heart, and so there's a lot of talk and missions is a big topic, and there's independent mission organizations, and you can be, you know, a missionary pilot, and you can be a missionary this and a that and a whatever. And I mean, I I do understand what they're trying to get at, but I just think that we, Living Faith Fellowship, has such a unique, clear laser focused understanding of the word of God and God's work that we need not deviate from the one main thing and that is we have to be about starting churches. And churches need pastors to lead them. And this is the target that we should be praying and desiring and begging God to call out from among us men and then their families with them to go and to shepherd and to pastor new converts all around the world. If you're going to start a new work, and if you're not, by the way, why are you considering missions? If you're going to start a new work, you are going to be the only qualified leader on the scene. You see how that fits together? For a long time, the local believers, as you win them, and and listen, I get it. The world's a great big place. and the the, The gospel's been around for a long time, and you'll go someplace in the world, and you'll meet some guys who have been saved but haven't been trained, and they'll want to join you, and praise the Lord for that. But they still need to be shepherded. They still need to be trained, right? They need to understand and see what biblical Christianity looks like. It needs to be modeled before them. We talked about that yesterday. Your ministry needs to not just be emphasized, it needs to be modeled before the churches as leaders. And a a church planting a, a biblical New Testament church existence in a place that doesn't have one it needs to be modeled before them these new converts need to learn to understand what is biblical preaching what is biblical discipleship How do I study my Bible? Why is singing praises to God so important? Why should I give of my resources to this church? What does a New Testament church actually do? How does it function? Who leads it? What's expected of members? They don't know. They have no clue the answers to those things. And you will need to model that in front of them so that they can get an idea of what it's supposed to look like. And by the way, all of those things I mentioned and any others you can think of that are associated with church ministry, you will have highly intelligent people that are new believers in Christ, watch and listen to you say the things that you teach and question you why. And you need to be able to give a biblical defense and an understanding of all the things that you do and why you do them. Your new enthusiastic convert on the ground that's been saved for a year and loves the Lord but doesn't know much is not ready yet to take that role. You need to pastor. They can't possibly be prepared in that short of a time. Besides, don't forget that there's a spiritual enemy out there and he's going to work overtime to make sure that he can, if he can, get these young believers into bad doctrine and bad practices. They need a shepherd. They need a shepherd that will feed them and that will guide them. And that's you, missionary. Because otherwise, they'll just be novices. Otherwise, they'll just get puffed up. And only after they learn all that and begin to live it out themselves faithfully and prove themselves well then they can be expected to take over some leadership as they should, right? So there is a popular modern philosophy among missions that it's really popular these days actually. And it says that the missionary should enter into a new context and do whatever he does from behind the scenes. That he should identify and win people to the Lord or identify existing believers. and. And just be behind the scenes and just kind of coach. And and what you want to do is you want to allow them to just come to, you know, their own conclusions. And you want to allow them to be able to express Christianity in their own way. And a lot of this is built on the fear that, well, what we don't want to do is, is be um, imperialistic, you know, foreigners that impose an American cultural norm on top of a national understanding that is very different. And I I, I get the sensitivity to the culture, but in order to facilitate the culture, you're going to step back from this myriad of biblical mandates and put forth some novice believer who doesn't know much and say, you know, you you lead and and I'm just going to you know, I'll meet with you and whisper and help to coach you a little bit on the side, but you go ahead and do it all. That's a problem, y'all. That's a real problem and that should not be our philosophy. Why should that not be our philosophy? Because you don't do that with your children. That's irresponsible parenting. And you're the new guy leading the new converts, your new children in the Lord. Be a good parent. Parent them. Proverbs 29, 15, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. If you were that kind of a parent, they'd call CPS on you. This whole idea, and there's listen, I even know there's people out there today that, I mean, they're all into this... one of the newer ideas out there is they call it free-range parenting. You ever heard of that? I know otherwise smart people that actually parent that way. They think that's the way you should do it. I think it's ridiculous. Let your kids, I mean, just let them experience it all. Quit worrying about it. They'll, they'll turn out all right. Oh, really? Well, that's said from the perspective of someone who doesn't know the scriptures. They don't understand sin nature. Look, if the Apostle Paul is the biblical example of a missionary, he is, by the way, what did Paul do on his missionary journeys? It's never going to be clearer than the summary of what he did at the end of his first missionary journey in Acts chapter 14. And when the Bible says that we are to follow Paul over and over and over, that we are to emulate him, that we are to do what he does, what exactly is it talking about? I believe what it's talking about is the end of Acts chapter 14. And you should have that in front of you. Acts 14, 21 to 23. Notice there are seven specific things that Paul did. These are the things that we should do. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had ordained them elders... In every church and had prayed with fasting, then they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. That's the Great Commission. You're gonna go and evangelize, and you're gonna train up and teach at all the various levels of training and teaching those that get saved to the point where they prove themselves worthy, not novices anymore and you can lay hands and ordain them as elders and commend them to the Lord and let them just continue off doing it before the Lord. They don't need you anymore. Evangelism, discipleship, church planting. That's all it is, super simple. But it's in a foreign context. Can I just tell you, being a pastor of a church anywhere is difficult. It's hard work. And doing it in a foreign context is even harder. Therefore, we should only consider sending people to do such a job if they have proven themselves to be among our very best, because it is the most difficult job out there. And the candidate should be as solid as anybody we know in all of the regular disciplines of pastoral ministry. I mean, what would you consider, what would you require of a man who wanted to be a pastor here in the States? It shouldn't be any different. You know, 1 Timothy 3.1, it's a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. That term, office of a bishop, it's the one office God ordained in leadership in the Bible. It's the same word that appears in Acts one twenty when it uses the term bishopric the bishopric, the office of a bishop. and it was a, it was applied to Judas which he had lost and it had to be replaced as one of the official 12 apostles. You don't read about the office of a missionary, the office of an evangelist in the context of an official position in the church. Romans 11:13 Paul defends his apostleship. he says, I magnify, my office now in first timothy 3 some of you already know it does say the office of a deacon but it really it's a different word that has a different meaning that's translated office i know it says it's an office in the church but it's not a leadership office because that word literally every other time it's used is defined and, and translated as minister and servant so as a result letter b consider challenging your church leadership to accept God's call to take the gospel to new places. You know, sometimes I think it's a problem that we in our churches, we, we develop a, a strong team of godly men that lead the church and we're so thankful and it becomes our vocation, it's our job as well as our passion. And and we lock in that job and the American church is so generous and kind and provides for us a salary and benefits that go with it, and, and we just think, I'm, I'm good here, man. So let's pray and preach like crazy so that the guy who doesn't do any of that can answer the call and go across the world. And so I, I've always thought that a church staff position, paid or unpaid, leadership position, officially recognized leader in your church, and those you ought to seriously consider... If you're one of those people, are you seriously considering taking the skills you've already learned in shepherding? You've already answered the call to the office of a bishop at some level. Could you take it to another place and do it? Because you know what can happen if you did? The odds are somebody else from the ministry will come up and take your place. And the ministry here will go on just fine. Oh, there's adjustments and opportunity for faith. But who is more qualified in the context of these things than the people who have already been doing it among us? What if our church staff and leadership positions became understood, not, listen, nobody's forcing anybody to do anything as God leads. What if it just became understood that that was a revolving door? And we can work people in and we can work people out of staff leadership positions, but Nobody is going to be better qualified to go to a different culture than somebody who's already been doing the exact work for some time and understands the nuances and the difficulties and the ins and outs of it right here. Then all the challenge is just applying it to a language and culture. But when a person hasn't been doing any of those things and then has to go and do it, oh my goodness, that's so difficult. Listen, if you're privileged to serve on the leadership team and you've been leading a team of volunteers and servants in your church in a particular ministry and you've proven yourself and you've been trained with education and you've proven yourself with fruitful ministry reproduction and there's a number of you in this room that are in that category praise god Have you ever, would you ever seriously consider leaving all of that and moving halfway around the world? Because you should. Consider it. You really should. You've already proven you have the desire for the office of the bishop. You've already proven your ability to serve in that capacity. And there's billions of people around this world who have never heard the gospel one time. And somebody just has to go. All right, having established that, these things connect. Number two is, I think our biblical philosophy of missions should include starting one model church. One model church. Since our focus and calling is to identify and train faithful men, 2 Timothy 2.2, from within our churches who will one day desire the office of a bishop, 1 Timothy 3.1, who have proven themselves through ministry responsibility in the church and sense God's call on their lives to separate and be sent by their local church, Acts 13, to reproduce the life of Christ in new places by starting new local churches. Well, man, in a word, it's the work of local churches to reproduce local churches. Amen. All over the world. And anything short of that, well, it's a compromise. The New Testament clearly identifies local congregations when it uses the word church. I get it. The word church is occasionally used as well, referring to the entire collective body of born-again believers from the resurrection to the rapture. But that really is the minority of usages of that word church, the universal church as it's termed is not actually a church by definition. The, church, the word church literally means a called out assembly. I get it that we are all assembled together at the right hand of God in heavenly places, but on earth, the universal church is not assembled and it won't be until the millennium. You could say at the rapture, but that'll be in the clouds. Okay, so God emphasizes the overwhelming majority of usages of the word church, local assemblies, local congregations. And in the meantime the last 2,000 years of church history, God has ordained that his work be done through local assemblies. So again, I'm going to give you some review, but I think it's germane to our discussion this week. Don't forget the importance of God's church. Don't allow yourself to get sucked into the popular idea that I'm into this missions thing and there's all kind of independent organizations out there and parachurch organizations out there and I can sign up and apply for it like a job with a resume and if they accept me, I can go and you know, be a missionary pilot or whatever those things are. Okay, please don't forget all the things that the Lord reminds us of what is so special about his church. Jesus Christ died for the church, Ephesians 5.25. He gets glory in the church. Ephesians 3.21, angelic beings take notice of God's wisdom through the church. Ephesians 3.10, only a church is required to have biblically qualified leaders. Think about that. All these other organizations, they're not churches, and so their leadership is, you know, whatever you get. Only a church is given the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, only a church is called Christ's body Colossians 1 18 and I get it any particular local assembly is certainly not perfect it's full of flawed people It's led by flawed people any one particular local church is not the perfection of God's design for the church but a biblical New Testament church local church is God's present picture of what that universal church one day will manifest. And that's the key. Because only a local church can picture what God expects for us all in eternity. You learn the dynamics of that by being a part of a local biblical New Testament church. Only a local church can provide the structure for young disciples to learn what the coming kingdom is going to look like. And if we're not working through churches to start churches, then we're falling short of what God intends. If you want your ministry to endure multiple generations, you're going to need to have one solid model church that all the other efforts afterwards can look to as the standard in that country. Does that make sense? So a lot of people set out with the best of intentions. Please, I understand this. And they say, you know, in year number one, I'm going to see if I can get five churches going. And every so many years, X number of church. And, they, and they, I, I get it. The, the motivation is great. As many as possible, as quick as possible. Let me tell them, just tell you, I've just seen it. The risk is great. Will they last the test of time? If we don't diligently do the work necessary to make sure that they are biblically qualified in all of these areas to be able to sustain. The New Testament gives us such a model. It's Antioch. It's the model of what a local church is supposed to look like. Because it's from Antioch that we see our first missionaries sending out. It's from Antioch that we get our Bible. It was in Antioch that they were so Christ-like that the people that didn't like them and mocking them called them, oh you, Christians. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Biblical principle, like begats like. Everything reproduces after its kind, Genesis chapter one. God's church is a living organism and healthy living organisms reproduce after their kind. It's not just a law of physical life, it's a law of spiritual life as well. That's why you want your first church to be a model church. So that any subsequent churches that come from that will look like that. If the root is not healthy, neither will the branch be healthy. And so in a missions context, we typically refer to a healthy, mature church as indigenous. So let's talk about what that term means. You may be familiar, you may not. Indigenous can be defined in three main statements. The first is self-governing. Self-governing means there's no need for outside foreign oversight. Leaders are trained and they're recognized and empowered to actually lead. They're not just a figurehead under the thumb of some foreign missionary that happens to have all the money. Why is this important? This is important because without it, there's no proven ministry. You don't really know what you have if you don't give them the space and they're not proven to be able to govern themselves under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. You don't have a ministry that has been proven and if it has not been proven it's in danger of destruction. Always answering to another, well, that's the role of a good subordinate, but not a true leader. This only happens if we're effective in our discipleship process, if we're effective in our training. And discipleship is the transfer of maturity, right? Not knowledge, we understand that. It's a personal relationship with the growing disciple that develops the trust necessary to ultimately, what Paul did in Acts 14, commend them to the Lord and walk away. Well, self-governing, the next one is self-propagating. Demonstrable fruit of evangelism and discipleship, which should extend to church reproduction as well. So are the local believers continuing the value of personal evangelism in their life and discipleship and training of believers that proves itself out with men being called out of that context to step out and start new churches and maybe even being called out to be sent out as foreign missionaries from there to other places? This is important because without it, there's no continuing life. If you're not self-propagating, it all dies with your generation. Organic reproduction is the real sign of spiritual health. How do we get that? Uh, Effective discipleship. This is very simple. Evangelism and discipleship is all we do for the rest of our lives. And churches should reproduce churches. Like reproduces like. The last one is self-supporting no need for outside monetary support of any kind and this is often the most difficult of the three to achieve especially in a poverty stricken location i get that but this is important because without it there's no spiritual liberty there's no spiritual liberty proverbs 22:7 says the borrower is servant to the lender And the guy who pays the bills always has something to say to the guy who gets it. It's just the way the world works. And if they can't get to the point where they can exist governing themselves, reproducing themselves, and funding themselves, they're not really yet as much. It's fine. Look, it takes time to do that, by the way which is another reason why you should go in with the mindset of being their shepherd until they're done. It's going to take a long time. But all of these things are just the result of effective discipleship. It can be done. Albania is not the poorest country in the world. It was very low on the scale back in the early 90s and I'm not gonna take a lot of time telling you my story. A lot of you have heard enough of it. All that just to say, is that we were able to achieve these things. And the idea being that even early, early on, when our church was comprised almost completely of high school and college students, we began to teach them the responsibilities of the Christian discipline and dynamic. And we taught them to tithe and to give, for example, speaking of finances, when they had nothing. And I remember talking to other missionaries and pastors that would say, you know, pastors are funny. They'll be like, well, you know, how much, how much or your offerings. <laughs> and, and so the missionaries are trying to compare notes, not to brag, but just to understand how's it working. I mean, this is a poor country, it's developing. You know, and they, and the guys were sharing, and I know it's, it's, it's a weird, for Americans, it's weird to talk about money, but in Albania, everybody just talks about it. How much money do you make? How much do you weigh? Like, they just ask questions, like, they don't care. <laughs> you're fat, you went to America, you're fat now. Okay, yeah. No. thanks. I have a mirror, I know. Um, so I just shared with them, you know, the, the offerings that we brought in or whatever, they're blown away, like, how is that even possible? I said, I just teach them the Bible. How, do you as a, how dare you as an American? Like they were asking, they were sincerely asking, how, how can you even have the courage as the wealthy Westerner to tell them they need to give? And I, and I said, how dare you rob your churches? of the blessing and joy of understanding that they can trust the Lord with whatever they have. Of course, their offerings didn't come close to funding what we needed in those years. But eventually, you know what, they graduated from school and college and got real jobs and started having families. Well, they've already learned the principle of giving. Now, they got money to give. Now they're doing fine. Well, praise the Lord. These are critical things. They, they can't be free in the Lord if they're beholden to somebody else to send them money. Isn't that the goal? Isn't the goal that all the peoples of the world freely worship God in their own way, that they're led only by the Holy Spirit, that they respond only to his word, that they carry out the ministry to their communities on their own without you having to always superintend over them? You see, if this one model church can be successfully established, then then the growing, continued expansion can that can go on for generations. If you give your life to a place and all you achieve is one indigenous church, man, you you have no idea the impact you've just made. It doesn't have to be fifty or hundred. But on the other hand, this you know, shotguns, spread them out as quick and fast as possible. Okay, I mean, if people are getting saved, all those are genuine, legitimately valuable things, but we're talking about changing the world. All right, let me jump into the next one. I think that, and I I want you to hear me in what I'm trying to communicate in this point. I want you to seriously evaluate the necessity of teams. What about sending out teams of people to work together? Uh, There's mission agencies out there today that require you to have a team of foreign workers in order to be approved. I've worked with some of those agencies, I know. I served for six years as a volunteer director on the board of a mission board in West Virginia, and they require you to have a team. There's one in North Kansas City that we've dealt with that requires you to have a team. They won't approve you to go and do things. and I mean, it sounds like a good idea. I totally get it. I mean, who wants to move halfway around the world all alone? I mean, what kind of a nut would that guy have to be? I want you to please not hear what I'm not saying. I want you to see how I chose the words of that statement. Seriously evaluate the necessity of teams. Of course, there are pros to having teams that work together. That should be fairly obvious if everything works out right you have instant friends you have co-workers you're like minded there's more synergy in the work you have encouragement when you get down you can share your experiences of adaptation you can continually and constantly challenge one another to continue on especially when you're down and that happens and so I'm not going to talk about that because I think those things are obvious and we should be all about those things. And there's also the whole idea of having a global support team. Of course, that's critical. Of course, that's important. So obvious, I don't even want to address that. What I want to present to you today is the other side of the coin. For your serious evaluation. And that is, there are some cons. And the listen, every, every church decide. I, I have dear friends that... They would disagree that they would ever send anybody out alone. But because of my personal experience, I can't possibly make that statement. My circumstances were such that I was sent out alone. And while you can argue whether that was ideal or not, I would say it's not ideal. I would say it's atypical, but God used it. And it can be done and it can be a consideration. And I just fear that when we as leaders set some arbitrary standard that by the way is not a biblical mandate it may be a good idea but it's not a biblical mandate when we set a standard and say you can't go unless you find somebody to go with you uh, I'm not comfortable with that so my first point is it's not necessary the team is not necessary I don't even agree that it's the only biblical model By looking at the Apostle Paul. Yes, Paul traveled with others: Barnabas, Silas, Timothy, Titus, Luke, I get it. He also frequently left them behind all alone in places. As he moved on as the ministry required. I wrestled with this in my own heart and life. I wrestled with what am I doing, Lord? I can't I can't go alone. Everybody's got to go out in teams. Everybody knows that. Jesus sent them out two by two. I'm all I'm only one. I didn't have a wife. I mean, I was alone, alone in a foreign country. That's weird. I, I begged the Lord, show me. Is this crazy? Am I wrong? Can I just share with you a couple of the places in the scriptures the Lord showed me some things? Exodus 33, 12. Moses said unto the Lord, see thou sayest unto me, bring up this people and thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send me with. Look, you gave me a job to do and I don't have anybody to it with. Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou hast also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray thee, if I've found grace in thy sight, Lord, right? Show me now thy way, that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight, and consider that this nation is thy people. And here's God's response to Moses. My presence shall go with thee. I'll give thee rest. You could look at that a couple of different ways. On one hand, he could say, Look, what I've given you, my grace is sufficient. That's good enough for now. But you know what he's really telling Moses? You're not alone. I'll go with you. My presence will go with you. He said, show me your ways. Moses begs God, show me your ways. I want to know where I'm going and how I'm getting there and how this is putting together. I miss my life we're talking about. So notice in Psalm 103, verse 7. He made known his ways unto Moses, but his acts to the children of Israel. Because while the children of Israel, the the folks in the congregation, they see what God does. They know his acts. But the leader doesn't just know the acts. He knows the way. He knows where we're going with it. See, God answered that prayer. As I work through the details in my heart and my life, I don't want to go through it all with you, but God gave me specifically Philippians 4, 6 and 7, where he says, Be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made to God. I did all of that. And the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And God was giving me a peace in my heart that didn't make sense. It had to pass the understanding. And then comparing that with Colossians three fifteen, when you get that peace of God in your heart let it rule in your heart let the peace of God be the ruler let the peace of God be the thing that is then directing and calling the shots to confirm to you this is what you must do those are some things God did in my heart the teams. there's a lot of reasons why teams are a good idea but it's not the only way that's all I'm trying to say Number two, it can be distracting, y'all. It can be. Listen, if you have 10, 15, 20 people, maybe it's just because of my experience, but what are they all going to do? If you have four families sent out to work together in some foreign context, I just want to ask the question, are you going to get four times the return? than you would if you sent one family? Are you going to get two times the return? Well, two is better than one. Yeah, but four is four times better. I mean, it's just something to think about. That's all. Let me give you some thoughts. Missionary teams create a bottleneck of leadership sometimes. As you're developing disciples and you've already got your team established with the foreigners and that's what they do. I mean, I came here to do this after all. I'm not just giving it up. Well, there's a bottleneck of opportunity for the growing disciples that are nationals. Kind of cut your legs out from under you. When missionary teams of imported leadership experts lead the ministry, well, you run the risk of setting the wrong tone for the generational continuation of this ministry. Listen, don't get me wrong. I'm all for working in teams and teams of leaders, but what if we just considered... Our team of leaders are nationals. I know it takes time to get there. I get it. Missionary teams, by the way, if you're not aware, require a fair amount of time maintaining unity in the team. Can I tell you that? You may not recognize it, but Christians are funny people. (laughs) we are easily offended. We don't like each other all the time. We don't like working with people or ideas that are different from ours. Amos 3.3, can two walk together except they be agreed? Frequently regular meetings are necessary, weekly if not more frequently, just to make sure everybody's okay. Doing what they're supposed to do, no conflicts, no undue stress. And when those situations surface, and they will, it takes a lot of time to work through them and make sure there's no schisms. I get it, okay, okay. Missionary teams typically require a lot of time. They frequently schedule a lot of meetings. They discuss strategy, intel, stories, plans, ideas, never-ending adjustments, which might just keep you from simply getting out and meeting people and telling them about Jesus, which is really all we're supposed to do. I mean, if the call to missions is really a call to pastor, and I mean, what are all the other team members? I mean, what are they all the team, meeting, uh, team members doing anyway? I mean, do I, do I need a foreign worship pastor or youth pastor? I mean, I don't know. You decide for yourself. I just want you to consider whether that's necessary. And would having all these roles provided by Americans slow your rate of cultural adaptation? They can. My fourth point is is very brief, we'll be done here in like 120 seconds. Have an exit strategy. This should be a part of your philosophy. You should philosophically own the idea that a missionary is to work himself out of a job. He should be constantly training his replacement or all the things we've discussed aren't going to happen. And setting that person in roles where they can practice and fail and get back up again. And I'm just going to say this, that far too few missionaries enter in from the very beginning with the philosophy that I'm temporary. Now, the danger with that is that you need to keep a balance, and these are the last two things I have in your notes. Your, your strategy, this exit strategy, should not be just a five-year stint, for example. It's a temporary mindset, that's not gonna work because missions is ministry and ministry and discipleship and training and shepherding is parenting. And parenting is never a short-term investment and we saw a child left to himself brings his mother to shame. So you have to have enough of a commitment that I'm in this for the long haul, but at the same time, you don't wanna have the other point and that it's a lifetime without a plan. Well, I've sold my life and I'm gonna die on this field and that all sounds really noble, but because I'm gonna be here my whole life, I'm just gonna live and we'll see what happens. Well, that's not good enough either. You should have goals, and you should be setting the strategy, and you should be working towards an end that says I'm going going to achieve something, and I'm going to get out of the way with a specific plan. The last statement is success without a successor is failure, and this can be applied in a lot of different ways. So the idea is you do all these things well, and you. Achieve a fruitful ministry and you replace yourself and you've got a successor and everything can continue smoothly, and that's all fine. And so you exit. What does exiting mean? Well, it can mean any number of things, depending on your situation. You can leave totally like I did. You can stay in a new role like Paul Clark, for example. You could leave that town and go to a different town, so you leave them alone, but you stay in the area and you keep working in a new way. That's fine. That's what Paul did. That's fine. There's no one-size-fits-all, just like there's no one-size-fits-all in local churches. But if the biblical DNA is present, and you have the doctrine and the philosophy, then the individual expression, led by the Holy Spirit, I think will be exactly what God wants it to be. I probably went a couple minutes longer than I should. Let me pray, and I'll be done. Lord Jesus, thank you for your love, and thank you for your word. And I pray that you'd help us to see the seriousness that comes with this endeavor that we have before us. But Lord, we're all in. We're all about it. And I pray that you will call out from among us more and more proven, trained men and women to go and do what only you can do through us as we submit to it. pray in Christ's name. Amen. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're interested in learning more about the Living Faith Fellowship, visit lffellowship.com. God bless.